0: This is After School on Core 77. I'm Don Lehman. Our guest today is Martin Kastner, the founder and principal designer at Crucial Detail in Chicago. One of his major clients also happens to be one of the world's top restaurants, Alinea. It sounds funny to hear that a restaurant regularly works with a designer. Well, The food they create there is so inventive and so unique that they've literally had to design tools just so people could consume it. If you haven't seen this work before, you owe it to yourself to look at Crucial Detail's website before you get too deep into today's episode. Check it out at CrucialDetail.com. Seriously, you're going to want to see this stuff. Last year, Martin kickstarted one of the objects he designed for Alinea's cocktail bar, Aviary. It's a drink infusion vessel called Porthole. Porthole absolutely smashed through his goal of $28,500 to raise nearly three-quarters of a million dollars. We talk about that too. If that wasn't enough, Martin has one of the most improbable designer origin stories I have ever heard of. Don't worry, I'm not going to ruin that for you, just stay tuned. Talk a little bit about your background before we get into um, some of your design work. Uh, where are you from?
1: Um, from the Czech Republic. That's where I grew up.
0: Okay. And what what's growing up in the Czech Republic like?
1: I, I, what's growing up like in the United States? You know, I don't know. It's like it depends on who's listening to it. Like everybody <laughs> who listens to it that's in the Czech Republic will be like Pff, normal. Normal. Right. So. so. Um, or, you know, so it's, it's really hard to frame that, you know, it was a little bit different when I was growing up, it was a totalitarian country, you know, it was, uh, like the first 15 years at least of my life before the revolution.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, so I think, you know, like I lit, I, I, I experienced that revolution as a teenager, which I think is a great thing, Yeah. a peaceful revolution. I don't know about one that wouldn't be peaceful, but, you know, I think that that would be something that probably kind of shakes your world up a little bit and makes you feel like things aren't always what they seem to be. right? Um, but, you know, other than that, I mean, it's pretty normal. You know, obviously, I guess it's not. Like, it's very different.
2: But right. it's on so many levels, you can't even like, kind of get into it. Right, yeah. It's, but uh... obviously, my
1: background, you know, like, I'm a blacksmith by trade. That wouldn't be very likely here. You know, it's kind of like the traditional trades, trade training um, that you can go through over there. You know it doesn't really exist in the same
2: yeah. capacity
1: here um you know so that would be one of the main differences yeah for me
0: was that common for for people to kind of i mean what are some when you say traditional crafts uh, you know were there a lot of people training to be blacksmiths
1: yeah I mean there's a good number of blacksmiths yeah a good number of um Potters, there's a good number of weavers, there's a good number of stone carvers, and you know these older trades that are still surviving. Um, I mean, their primary focus today is restoration work. In case of like, say, stone carving or um, some of the you know higher level masonry and blacksmithing, and you know, so you're really um, kind of working on restoring and maintaining kind of the heritage. Yeah. you know, the primary focus isn't necessarily making new stuff. Um, but it's definitely not that uncommon
0: yeah what's the what's the training like for that are you, are you an apprentice are you going to school somewhere
1: well in case of blacksmithing it, you're um at that time there was you know one check probably a tiny little country it's the size of maybe i don't know smaller than illinois i think it's yeah maybe ten million people um so there's one school in the country that um was kind of um you know it was kind of like a boarding school high school kind of thing where it's uh it's like a mix of high school and a vocational school or I, I guess I don't really know what the problem would be here in the States. Yeah. But you know, it's a school you that gives you your regular high school curriculum and on top of that, the arts education and the training to be the trained person. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's a little bit more involved, like you spend a little bit more time in school. Um, but you know, at the end you you have your high school diploma. It's so like everybody else. Plus you have, you know, your trade certification, you have a training and as a part of that, you know, like in the summers, you spend a little bit of time apprenticing and you have to travel, you have to go, or it's a good idea to go see other, you know, other shops and, uh, you know, how things are done. Part of it is a requirement. Part of it is just kind of like if you're if you're really interested, you make it a point.
0: Right. What were your blacksmith uh, teachers like? I mean, is it some older gentleman? Is it a younger a you know, woman, have, or I don't know what. Who? Who? What, what's the background? Because you know, I have like this image in my head of like design school, but I can't imagine if it's like a trade. It's it's sort of like a different uh, kind of a different philosophy, maybe of of teaching.
1: Not really. I mean, it's. Um, I, I guess I don't know. I didn't go to design school. Yeah. But it's. Um, they were, you know, bearded guys in their forties late thirties, early forties. Yeah. Um, at that time, you know. Uh and they went through kinda of the same education that I was going through. So it's, you know, part fine arts, part um kind of the, the trade. Yeah. And have gone through some studios or um you know, it's really small family shops that um uh, worked in the trade. Yeah.
0: What what were the influences that they were teaching you about? Is it historical? Or are there are there some modern elements that they're teaching you about? Or?
1: Well, any you know, like it's it's kind of too, Like half of the focus is fine arts focused, and half of the focus is the trade. You know, so in the in terms of the art, it's very you know very current, very up to date. In terms of the trade, you're really looking at the historical evolution, and you know. Kind of the context of, of of the development of the techniques and everything, um, so it you know it cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. Obviously, different teachers have different leanings, but in general, I think there there's always interest in finding new uses and new vernacular for the traditional trades in a way to kind of like propel them forward, so they don't feel like you know so you don't feel like you're stuck in in a certain place. But it's um, yeah, I mean, it, there there are a couple like pivotal points in the history in the evolution of the trade, you know, so that's kind of what you're focusing on. Mm-hmm. Um, there are techniques that revolve around it and then, you know, also the the vernacular, the, the forms will be very, you know, typical of a period. Right. So that's because the focus is always going to be on restoring and or maintaining or contextualizing work. It's That's always going to be something you, uh, you know, you have to be mindful of. So I'd say that's, probably the primary focus of, you know, of the training as a blacksmith.
0: Yeah. And what did you like about it at that point?
1: Well, what I like, what really attracted me to it, to be honest, was, uh, you know, I was 12 years old picking out a school to go to, and uh, as a 12-year-old, anything that has to do with fire is really exciting. <laughs> and the idea of having a hammer and heating up a piece of steel and give it form is, you know, is very attractive. Yeah. But, um, the other aspect was the- per- sense of permanence that I had um you know the city I grew up in is the, it's a small gothic city in uh western Virginia and it's um you know so you're surrounded by buildings that are hundreds of years old and in a way you get this like sense of permanence and this footprint that the left that have come before us and I think that kind of attracted me to this like to making things they're physical they're real right um so that combined with uh some mild, you know, pyromania and holding a hammer for a living was kind of what, what drew me to blacksmithing. It's, you know, my family is not traditional, like, we're not a trade family in that sense, where, you know, there's generations of blacksmiths. Hmm. Um, my family's actually a family of coopers making cask, making uh, barrels for beer.
0: Okay, so you going into blacksmith, was there, that they totally in support of that, or if there's like this generational thing that you're Everyone in your family's you know, making no, barrels. No, this was
1: pretty much, you know, disrupted by World War II. So I was, my parents were not really a part of this okay. like tradition. You know, it stopped with our grandparents. Yeah. So there was no, um, you know, there was not really any misgiving about being a blacksmith versus being a cake maker or barrel maker.
0: Right. So after you're doing this for a while, how long were you in school? Four years. Four years, and then so after four years, uh, did you have any thought? You know, did you think of what you were going to do with blacksmithing? Af- you know, after that time.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, I felt like I, I was more interested in the making than in the fine art yeah. aspect of it. Um, so I, at the time, you know, I had to do a military service after high school. It was a, it's a, it's a it was a requirement at the time. Um, and in place of military security, civil service. And I managed to land a spot at a castle as a blacksmith, basically doing blacksmithing, working for a government agency. Oh, wow. In place of being in the army. Yeah. Um, And so that gave me kind of a taste of the real, like, what is it like to just kind of be on your own and just doing it without actually being under the economic pressures of running your own shop, which I think was important for me. Because I realized this is not what I want to do. Yeah, uh, working you know at the castle. Whereas if you open your shop, which is most what most people do, and you just get into the daily rhythm of it, and you kind of there's no way out at that point. So I was lucky enough to be able to experience it on a non you know non for profit basis and uh, working for the government doing the same thing. Uh, it made me realize it's not really what I want to be doing for the rest of my life.
0: Right. What kind of stuff were you making? at this castle?
1: Well, most of it would be restoring kind of whatever came, comes your way, window grills, gates, um, locks, box locks, making keys for padlocks, or, you know, like most of the stuff was lock related. Yeah. This castle have lots of doors and keys get lost and broken and damaged and, you know, locks are found. So you, you kind of, yeah, it was mostly, mostly dealt with making keys and fixing locks or lock elements like springs. Um, Occasionally, it would be a larger piece, like a gate or a window grill. I think there's some weapons and some challenges I did there too, like just fixing or restoring.
0: Yeah. So, I'll, I'll, most of your training at this point, you know, you're you're very hands-on. I mean, you're literally hand manufacturing all all of this stuff. When did you, um, you know, at one point did you? I guess I'm trying to figure out where you decided to come to the u s versus you know when you um started getting into, because your work now is is fairly modern and you've you've moved a year into different materials. I'm kind of trying to figure out where the transition to to these new materials yeah. and and your journey kind of led you it's a
2: little
1: bit a longer of a story but um it's good from so from the castle I went to study natural material design mm-hmm. I decided to go back to school or go to college. And, um, you know, that was the focus of that studio was, um, her study was looking at these traditional techniques, which, you know, Blacksmith would have been one of, um, and really look, you know, being focused on finding new uses for them or applications for them. Uh, and this would involve paper making, weaving, ceramic production, wood carving, um, And that's kind of where I was exposed to a lot of other materials and production techniques. And this school is very well connected to the manufacturers, like co-ops that are weaving or factories making toilets. And, you know, and you got to every project was pretty much connected to a factory. Um, So you got to go and kind of go through the, the entire process hands on. Yeah. You know, from like the design iterations to mold making to part of the production, you know, and in the end, the end result would always be a physical, actually produced piece, not a prototype, but, but a really produced piece. And I, I mean, I did this just for for a year, but I think that's that was kind of the one of, like the, at that point, once you started learning about other materials in technology, it's almost like languages. Once you learned a second language and you start to understand the differences, yeah. It seems easier to understand, you know, the third and fourth and fifth. Sure. Um, even though you might never become fluent, but you at least have like this kind of clue as to what the differences are, how to, how why you need to think about it differently. And you know, I think that, that was kind of my intro into different materials and then I went to another school and I studied sculpture, metal sculpture and jewelry design, which was not jewelry design in the sense of designing rings. But it was more looking at the conceptual aspect of body object interactions and the idea of a dormant and you know how kind of like our function in space, and all this stuff kind of translates into the way I look at design today, but yeah to kind of shorten the story i um one of my professors was she was she was actually american she um she kind of introduced us because it wasn't just me but like me and my fellow students to design as a discipline that exists outside industrial design that, you know, like kind of the less utilitarian aspect of it that really connects to the way we were thinking about objects and our interactions with them. Um, And that was kind of, so, and during this time in Prague, I met my wife who is American and who at some point decided she wanted to come back to the States. And I, Thought I was coming here for a few months, 15 years ago. Um, <laughs>
2: you
1: know, I, so I, the, you know, coming to the states was not really a premeditated, you know, intentional act. It was kind of like coming here to just, you know, see where she's from, what the place is like, and eventually right. it became very hard to leave.
0: Yeah, um, and so you've been in Chicago but, since then, or did you go to yeah, Chicago we're, first? Yeah, we're
1: in Columbus, Ohio. That's where my wife. I went to school and then we were in california and we've been in Chicago for the last eight years okay um, so it was pretty much when I came to the states um, that I realized that I can't you know I'm a blacksmith by trade with uh, you know a graduate degree in sculpture It's just, you know you're unemployable pretty much. So you, you know, I had to look at I, design. Was just something that really kind of fell at the inter- fell at the intersection of these areas that I was interested in. But it's not necessarily, you know, it it was almost by necessity that I started considering it seriously as like something to do
0: because
1: right. it was, you know, I, I just couldn't find any work as a blacksmith. And uh,
0: sure, we we, we don't have too many castles over here, right? Yeah. So at that point, did you? You know, because that's—it's hard to break into design if you don't have, you know, that traditional design training. You know, I mean, you—I'm sure you go to like a job interview, or something, or you try to get a a freelance gig, or I don't—I don't know what what you did to start to find work. But your background as a blacksmith, I think, would probably be interesting, but also kind of not in the, you know, in the expected for for most employers so what what how did you kind of make that transition to being a a designer maybe you just called yourself a designer
1: right that's kind of what i did yeah i uh i started looking for work i couldn't find work but i find i found a few places that were willing to let me use their facilities like a few fabricators that would let me use their shop and i would just have to pay them rental fee and get my own insurance and all that stuff um it gave me access to equipment and you know i know how to make things so instead of trying to you know I, I basically started making things and putting them on the website and you know trying to sell them or take them around and see if i can sell them i wasn't really uh trying to get work as a designer but it was more you know i had i had access to making products so i just started making it
0: so what what were you making then
1: um I don't know, whatever I could kind of, whatever would cross my path and I would feel like I can improve it a little bit. Um, like a wine rack, um, you know, I don't know, coat hangers, pot racks, just kind of very, uh, simple stuff that you can, you know, that's easily producible. And then once people kind of heard about me, they started calling me like, Hey, I need, you know, I'd like somebody to make, like a bunch of pieces for my foyer was like would be like a photo studio. I'm like, okay, I can I can do that, you know. And then this is my budget, so then I work with that budget and figure out a way to to design something that's interesting and you know that can be fabricated relatively inexpensively. So that was kind of my intro. That's kind of how it all
2: started.
0: Yeah. So then Alinea, Um, how did that? Well, maybe before we even get into alinea, explain what alinea is because it it's it's such an interesting restaurant um that you kind of need to talk about it a little bit before you even can talk about designing for it so talk about what alinea is
1: well, I think it should be the guys at alinea that would just you know, they would answer it I feel like i'm gonna I'm gonna misinterpret it or butcher it.
2: Well find, but yeah, yeah but, but, but
0: yeah but you're can, their I can designer say what, so how I
1: see it right. So sure. okay. Um Alinea is I guess I hate to call it a restaurant really, but I guess it still is a restaurant. I almost feel like the word restaurant is, is a little bit misleading because that it implies you know, um that it implies that the primary product is food. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like, you know, Alinea really is, um, is a place that looks at the entire experience in a little bit more holistic way. Uh, it's not really just about the food itself. Obviously the food is at center stage because the guys are, you know, that's what they do. That's their primary medium. But in the process of kind of thinking creatively about food and the dining experience, they're not neglecting all the other aspects of it. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's a restaurant that kind of pushes itself or challenges some of the norms and perceptions of what a restaurant is. Um,
0: yeah. think, and it's generally regarded as, you know, one of the best, if not the best, in the country, in the U.S.
1: Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's true. Um, but I don't think, you know, I mean, that recognition is is a result of, like all the stuff that they do but i think that what distinguishes them really is this focus on the experience as a whole more than you know the awards that right. they receive it's, right. you know um piece that's it's you know I, I feel like it doesn't saying that they're the best restaurant doesn't really qualify who they are like it, because that's not right. what they're doing you know they're not trying to be the best restaurant they're just trying to um, to build this experience, you know, i just going to explore what what's possible.
0: Yeah. And so when in their um, development did you get involved?
1: Well, before Alenia existed. Okay. Um, Alenia didn't. I, um, I got an email from Grant Akitz, uh,
0: Grant's the, the, the head chef, one of the founders of Alinea.
1: Right, he's the he's the the chef, the head you know, chef. And, yeah. yeah, one of the owners. And, um, so before before Lenny existed, um, he was running Trio, which is a small restaurant in Evanston, um, and he was he just sent an email. He says to uh, to uh, maybe thirty designers, saying, "I'm a chef. I'm looking for somebody to design new ways of serving food," and nobody else responded. Other than me, and what intrigued me about that message was the, its openness. You know, it was really not specific about anything in any aspect of the dining experience of serving food. You know, it was it was so open, and it, it was something that I had thought about quite a bit because, um, like I said, I was really interested in kind of body-object interactions and food. You know, is this medium that really crosses this line of, the you know, the exterior, the object and, and the body. So conceptually, I was really intrigued by it. But I also felt like it's this other skill set that I can never really, you know, challenge or tackle myself. So the fact that there was a chef who was interested in it and was contacting me, I found that really exciting. Um, so I just asked him, you know, why do you need this? And he was kind of like, well, there's all these techniques that we've developed or that have been developed over the last couple of decades. And, but the table service hasn't really evolved. And you feel like there's so much that we can do in the kitchen, but we cannot actually deliver it in an adequate form in the dining room. Um, so I was kind of like, well, let's, you know, let's look at some specifics. And we did a couple of test projects and, you know, the response was great. So we just kind of kept going. Yeah. And, um uh, Eventually, they, um, you know, the Alenia project got underway, and I became a little bit more involved.
2: Yeah,
0: well, I, that's kind of the key thing about your collaboration is that their some of their uh, dishes wouldn't be possible if, it, in you know, what you would expect from you know a traditional restaurant of like plate, fork, knife. You had to develop a lot of. Um, really unique custom implements, really, to deliver food from the kitchen to the table to, to you know, diners' mouths, essentially. Um, talk about, you know, how does that process work? You know, do you have an idea for an object and a delivery mechanism, or does the Alinea team have a, a dish in mind that they don't know what they're doing. Maybe, yeah. Just just talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, they're in. You know, either way, there have been like, we we have a very, um, you know, open, relaxed relationship. You know, so if
2: if there's an idea
1: on on their side or there's a dish or there's a challenge, you know, they they approach me. Or if I have some idea about um, a service concept, I'd approach them. And sometimes we just kind of find the place in between, you know, or it's just, it's a matter of having a conversation and just, um, seeing what, uh, what sticks. But, you know, some of the, some of the projects revolve around like a really abstract goal. Like, you know, one of the projects would be when Grant wanted to serve something that's hot and cold at the same time. Um, and, you know, the challenge was like, how do you, how do you do this? How do you make it intuitive? How do you make it an interesting experience for the, for the diner? And how do you make the service basically work seamlessly within the context of the restaurant? You know, and then like with that, you can really forget what you know about conventional serviceware, and you really start to focus on the properties of the material and the volumes and you start to give it form, these big materials that that make sense.
0: Mm-hmm. So, talk about that that dish, the uh, the hot and cold dish, because I think I know it's the, it's the the potato soup right. one, right? Talk about yeah. that dish and what your goals and and Grant's goals were, and and in, in, in,
2: in yeah, both, so in this case,
0: yeah. Go ahead. Yes,
2: yeah, so in
1: this case, Grant was. Um, he was interested in basically serving, you know, presenting this contrast um, and the evolution of, this, like the, you know, the, the thermal transformation in the mouth cavity, if you want to give it a weird name, um, <laughs> for the diner without, you know, feeling like there's anything else that, you know, was really a restriction other than it had to be a one bite. It has to happen in a single bite. Otherwise, you're gonna lose. You know, the temperature is just gonna not gonna work so well. So just start start thinking about how, you know, how can we make it work? And we're just thinking, like what's you know, what's what makes sense to you know, what's gonna hold heat well? Uh, what stays hot? What stays cold? And like, where? What's the relationship between the hot and cold object? And start playing with different volumes and different materials. And one thing that I I remembered was. Um, when we were kids, we used to eat these ice cream bars, were they were terrible, they're not very good, and they had this chocolate that was really waxy, you know, like the worst chocolate that exists out there, but i it, it had really interesting properties. It did not melt when you held it, and it did not feel cold and so i I kept trying to think like you know like can I replicate that? And I started playing and paraffin wax does that. You know, when you look at food-grade paraffin wax, it, it stays. It doesn't. You know, it insulates pretty well. It doesn't communicate temperature, and uh, it doesn't feel uncomfortable. So, so it doesn't feel uncomfortable to touch, even though it might be really, really cold. And it also insulates the you know the the contents, so they don't warm up very you know very easily. And that's kind of where the idea for the wax bowl came from, was um, using you know, it's this old waxy chocolate ice cream bar.
0: Right, and so you you've you basically you you've given them a custom mold for this paraffin wax bowl, and so that holds the the hot or the cold? Is it this? It's this the su- cold. It's the cold.
1: Yeah, and then you pierce the wax with a pin, and the hot piping hot potato is place at the end of the pen you pull the pen out which drops it the potato into the soup and you take it you slurp it like an oyster and it pretty much gives you both sensations at the same time yeah um so that's that's kind of the evolution of that piece I mean the one thing that I was really interested in was the fact of this like non-existing service piece that you know that we're really only making molds and then that you know it's something that's produced daily at the restaurant as the final delivery vehicle yeah
2: yeah,
0: and it's it's so interesting because I mean that's just one, but there's literally I don't know, I don't know how many pieces you've done with him, now, but it's it seems like each is so unique because you know some of them are literally you know like a skewer that you're just asking the diner to just eat hands free. So and and Grant has literally. Design that piece of food to hit a certain part of the mouth in a certain way so you know each taste bud is activated in a in a certain way I mean it's, it's really at that level with some of these
1: uh, yeah it's something you know like where the once you start having these conversations with the chef, you start you know like the design feeds on um, you know design is informed by the culinary goals and processes and vice versa. Yeah, like I think that's the one thing that was really valuable from like some of these design pieces for the kitchen, uh, for the restaurant. Um, you know, learning that some of these utensils allow you to control perfectly which aspect of a dish will hit you know specific parts of the mouth cavity, and you can then play off of you know sound quality and texture and you know kind of like the the prevailing taste spots like sweet, salty sides, you know, bitter, you can you can really start to manipulate it. And it's hard to achieve this level of control any other way.
0: Yeah. Alinea and Grant Ackett's and, and his partners, they've since branched off and they've created, uh, I guess, sister restaurants, like what might be the way to describe it, that kind of that have some of that spirit, but they kind of branch off and do their own thing. One of those restaurants is uh, Aviary, which is this... uh, Maybe you can
2: describe Aviary.
1: Yes, Aviary is a... It's a bar. It's not (laughs) really a restaurant. It's a lounge. Right. probably the most accurate way to describe it. Um, But their goal was to look at the cocktail experience in the same way, they're looking at the dining experience at a linear um, and try to kind of, um, refine it and, you know, control it in a way um, and see, just kind of, you know, play with it. But ultimately, it was about looking at it, trying to refine it and yeah. look at the, whole you know, again, with the cocktail experience in a little bit more kind of holistic way.
2: Yeah.
0: So, talk a little bit about um, porthole, which is a design that you for, you first did that for aviary, correct? Correct. Yeah. So how? Yeah. Did, so what? Yeah. So go ahead.
1: Mm-hmm. So before uh, before the aviary opened, we had conversations about the cocktail culture and the ideas for cocktails, and you know the delivery mechanisms for cocktails that that exist and. uh one of the ideas floated by the, the AVA bar shifts was a short-term time-based infusion, basically a cocktail that transforms, that's infusing over a period of, say, 20, 30 minutes, and you really want to display that transformation and enable the the guests to experience the progression of both color and flavor of the drink over the course of the infusion so we're kind of looking at teapots and just felt like they're not designed for the right volume they're all too big um they don't necessarily display well what's going on in terms of the infusion and i kept thinking about um kind of the piece needing to be a window into this kind of underwater world where under under alcohol world mm-hmm. where you, you're watching things, you know, change and infuse. Um, and so that's kind of where the idea for uh, this window system of having two flat uh, glass panes with a spacer in between came from. And then you kind of play with the form. And refined it. we produced uh, a couple dozen of them for the aviary here at the studio.
2: mm mm-hmm. So, and the, then, uh,
0: so the first batch you made yourself by was it by hand or you sourced some parts or
1: Yeah, we kinda do mix and match of everything. You yeah. know, whatever makes most sense. So, you know, the, the original portholes were uh partially water jet cut and we uh machined them and finished them here. Um and we're pressing the spouts in, in place. So it was kinda it's always a mix or it, you know, it often is a mix. Like at the studio here, we do a lot of the production of the, the addition pieces or you know small batch client projects. So it was the same case with the with the borehole, yeah. where we you know where where it made sense we would source the parts. Where it uh, seemed we where we either wanted to have better level of control or it just wasn't cost effective. We just do it here. Yeah. So the first. Yeah, a couple dozen pieces were were made here at the studio.
0: And so, what what was the reaction to them that led you to believe you should do a Kickstarter project to produce more of them?
2: Yeah,
1: pretty much since the day the aviary opened, I started getting calls about the poor hole. Um Started calling and emailing, asking if they can buy it. Um, and the, you know, the first few I was kind of, I mean, it, it was just so expensive. Right. For us to make it, and it just—I feel like there's no way we can improve on the cost a whole lot if we do it all in-house. Uh, but then once I had 100, 120, 150 inquiries, I, was, I started to feel like if 150 people made the effort in the last, you know, four months of service since they were very um, uh, to contact me, maybe maybe you should think about. Modifying it for larger volume production, maybe we can make them. And you know, if there's enough interest, we can, um, we can go ahead and produce a larger, you know, larger volume. So I redesigned it for, you know, conventional technologies and uh, put it on Kickstarter. So to kind of see
0: it uh, explode.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Talk about that uh, right after. Yeah, you know, just talk about launching it on Kickstarter, what the reaction was a little
1: bit, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, the reaction was kind of overwhelming, yeah, you know the like I was the expectation really was they would produce several hundred of them, really, my kind of wildest dream was a thousand units, yeah, um, and that's what the whole production you know the run up to the Kickstarter was geared towards. Cause you're, you know, you're contracting manufacturers for all the different components and, you know, scheduling everything. It really with that, um, you know, that production volume in mind. And so as the, you know, we, I think we reached that in a day.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, you know, so I just started, you know, calling the factories and being like, okay, we, we're going to have to make more. Is that okay? Like what, what, how's that going to affect everything and, um usually yeah,
0: so usually that's a good thing for them but it's probably a huge <laughs> headache for for you
1: right well the, you know like i don't know if you follow the project but we're pretty much now finally getting yeah. to ship the last of them yeah um and you know so it's been it's been a struggle and like the thing that i wasn't really prepared for and because the, i mean we deal with some large volume production But usually it's glass or ceramics. They're you know single technology, single vendor, Um, and they don't necessarily. We don't control the the flow. You know it's usually a part of somebody else's logistical channel. It's basically we approve the design, give hand the patterns over to the factory, and and they produce it. So in this case, managing the entire um, flow or trying to, uh, has been, you know, kind of a big challenge because you're all of a sudden not looking at designing a product but you're managing a system. Which is a little bit of a different mindset. So it's you know, it's been a it's been a learning experience. Um I don't know what yours was when, when you did your Kickstarter. But, you know, I've just kinda at every step there have been surprises that I I'm kind of shocked by, you know, just unexpected turns. And I shouldn't be saying this publicly, probably.
2: Well, why?
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. This feels like, uh, you know, to say that it's, it was unexpected.
0: Oh, no. I, I mean, that's the best part. So talk about some of that unexpected stuff.
1: Well, I think one lesson was that when, you, when the scale increases, you cannot, you're not just scaling up. You know, it's not a simple math of just adding the time. You know, for one, because we ended up producing 10 times as many pieces as what I was imagining was the maximum quantity.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, obviously, we are taking, we're not taking 10 times as long, but we're definitely taking, you know, five, six times as long. Um, But what happened is that with a thousand piece production, a lot of the factories would be like, yeah, we'll schedule you in between production rounds of, you know, other production. But when you eat 10,000 of them, uh, you're not one of the pieces they schedule in between. You become one of those that get scheduled. Right. And all of a sudden that means that you went from several weeks to a couple months lead times to months and months of lead times because the, it's just simply too big of a run. Right. Uh, and, and so that was one really... Yeah, that's, and that's, the,
0: that's the opposite of what I would think because, you know, you would think you know, okay, so now you're actually like a big fish for them instead of like a small thing. And usually you think, well, if I'm bigger, then I'm going to have more uh, sway with them to, to kind of get what I need when I need it. But it's actually the opposite because you were so big, you actually needed to get scheduled and you couldn't just slip in between some of the cracks.
1: Yeah, that's that's been my experience. Yeah, you know, and it, it, this could vary by, you know, from one manufacturer to the next. Sure. And I don't, you know, because we deal with much smaller production, usually my experience is kind of limited to, you know, just the, the industries I'm familiar with. And, you know, this definitely wasn't really one of them. So, you know, that was one. The other aspect is, you know, kind of, um, every time there's a problem, the production stops and gets rescheduled until the problem is solved, right. which is just, you know, really nerve wracking. Right. And, you know, it's really surprising that very simple things can, can, uh, can run into problems that you just didn't even think were you know possible in, in the first place. Or just, you know, there's just things that I, you know, I'm still being surprised, even at this point, even though we've gone through 10,000 of them. You
0: know, right? Yeah, I mean that that that's the thing about manufacturing is that I think people think it's you know robots somewhere, you know, making this stuff, and it's all exactly the same. But it's really you know, it's it's still handcraft for the most part. You know, I mean, like right. every 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 piece is different from every other piece, even though it looks at first blush maybe. Identical.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, that's you know, that's. A, I think that's something that is always going to be difficult to convey. Yeah. You know, to customers, and I think managing expectations in this sense is one thing that I never even thought about Man- really going into it.
0: Managing you know, the it, expectations of your backers.
1: Of, of the backers. Yeah. You know, it just didn't really. It never. I never thought about that as being a discipline in itself,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, in customer service. And all of a sudden with thousands of backers and, you know, huge number of products, there is uh, a need for customer service and there's a need for all that stuff. Like, you know, real business is like growing up. And um, it's not easy to make that transition if you didn't really plan for it. I'd say the biggest lesson for me was, you know, if I was to do something like this again, plan for crazy success, like take your wildest imagination, multiply it by 20 and, and have a, have that as like a backup in case it does happen.
2: Yeah.
1: It's, it's, um, you know, it was, it's the one option that's probably the, you know, harder to make than, you know, scaling down. It, it, you know, it's probably just from my vantage point right now where it seems like we, it would be easier to go the other way, but probably not. I mean, definitely the scale helped. Yeah. Um, because at some point, instead of trying to negotiate better prices, we trust start negotiating better quality. Yeah. And it really, it, you know, it really helped it. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that we had that opportunity because the porthole is a lot better today than it, you know, that it would have been a year ago if we had only 300, 400 backers.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I
0: mean it it's uh I received mine uh a couple months ago and it's it's just impeccable. It's so well done and um it's it's really really beautiful. Um you know, I want to talk a little bit about um being late on Kickstarter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Um because and and you are by no means a minority. I think the vast majority of projects on Kickstarter, are they face delays? I mean, I I certainly did every nearly every product design project. And I would consider yours. A, it's a product in a sense. Um, they're late, and it's because you go through this manufacturing, and so and you, you've talked a little bit about dealing with backers. What's <laughs> There's a little bit of an emotional toll there, I, I found at least, because uh, you d- you don't want to disappoint people, and they're you know they're they're willing, you know they they go along with you on this journey, and they maybe don't understand uh, just kind of the the amount of effort it takes even just to update, you know to send out a Kickstarter update. What's it been like for you, you know, considering just the the vast amount of work you have to do just to get this. Um, this Kickstarter run out the door, you know, how have you been dealing with it?
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not quite sure how to answer that. Um, You know, it definitely, like, you're right, it does take an emotional toll. Like, you're, you're, I feel committed to, you know, to people who have supported it. Yeah. And, you know, in some cases, I can't even, you know, like, it doesn't make sense business-wise, Right. Like, at some point, you're just you're trying to make people happy in a way that, like, any business person would tell you, just don't do it. Um, you know, so there's definitely a sense of responsibility to, and then, you know, gratitude towards the backers. At the same time, like, at some point, you just run into just some backers don't necessarily see them as backers. They see themselves as buyers or purchasers. Yeah. And at that point, it's, you know... You just can't communicate with them effectively at all because they're—they just want their product, and you know it's—it um, started as a work in progress. It wasn't—you know—that's the whole point of Kickstarter. Right. So there's definitely—that um, element's been difficult for me because you know you just like you're—you know you're not going into it with the intention of being late, so you're the one who's disappointed the most, right, the yeah. entire time. You're the one who's first, like, obviously, I've I've had so many backers that, you know, complaining that there are not enough updates, or that they don't, you know, that it's not transparent enough, but I mean, I think everybody would get pretty quickly bored with copies of my angry messages and phone calls with the factories, and yeah. you know, it's just not, it's, if they're, yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult to to explain like you know where you're going through it's intense it's uh it's definitely a lot harder than it seemed it it would be,
2: yeah yeah
0: yeah i think when i when I look back on my own experience it it was that um you know there were many more you know for every ten really happy backers there was well maybe not even that little for every you know 500 backers. There was one that was just would not leave me alone, and was just you know I stay up at night thinking about this one you know ridiculous acting person like you know literally people, uh, you know saying they're gonna go to the FBI, right? <laughs> you know, no, and, I, I... <laughs> and which is crazy. Yeah. It's like I mean, what do you what? What's the FBI gonna do? Come to uh you know my parents' house where I was uh, and literally putting everything together by hand and, and see I'm doing exactly what I'm saying. You know, so it's just kind of this craziness, but I don't know.
2: Yeah, go ahead, sir. Yeah,
1: it's um no, I was gonna say it's you know, obviously I have a very similar experience. But there's one thing that actually made it uh made it somewhat um, manageable. And uh it was actually Nick uh Kakona's grands business partner, I was, yeah you know kind of describing what I was all dealing with here, and he's like, "You know what we do? We fire our worst customers, basically send them their money back, yeah, don't let them harass you yeah, and so I started doing that, and you know the vocal pen is what I call it yeah um we you know we refunded them, and basically it was just. It's not, you know, if people are just concerned or, you know, they're saying it's late and all that stuff, that's, you know, that's not, that's fine. Like, it's we can explain what's going on, you know, but some people are just like, don't tell me in the world of today's connected world economy and automated mass production, you cannot get this thing done in three weeks and ship it to me. You know, so I'm like, <laughs> you know what, take your money back.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: We're not going to speak the same language. This is just not going right.
2: to work. Right. Um,
1: so I, that that made it somewhat manageable, you know, because ultimately, people if they're not expecting their porthole anymore and they they got their money back, they they lose interest.
2: Right. Yeah. They go away.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So how is um how is everything going with that now? Kind of where where do you where do you stand?
2: Well, we're,
1: like I said, we're almost finished with the Kickstarter and pre-orders of the porthole. And, you know, it's a little bit of a crossroads, and I'm still... It was so kind of paralyzing to our operation, or to my operation, my functioning, that I'm kind of looking at it, and I feel like there's an opportunity to... You know, to, to grow in the direction of designing more product that has this kind of, like, bigger impact, in a sense, if that makes sense. Sure. You know, uh, or just kind of go back to small client projects. Um, and they're, you know, it just feels like the two are very difficult to manage together. Like, it feels like they're almost incompatible. Yeah. Um, you know, so then the question is, like, do we, how do we organize this? How do we split it up? Or do we just say one is enough? Um, you know, uh, like, right now, I I really... Like, the emotional response is wise enough. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like there's so much that I've learned and we've learned over the course of the year that it would be kind of crazy to just throw it away.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, now you've got this whole infrastructure set up. It'd be kind of a shame to, you know, not utilize it. Yeah. But
1: I think it it just you know, there needs to be a little bit of just time for reflection and, and gestation. Yeah. But who knows, maybe uh maybe there'll be another project on Kickstarter in November if I find an interesting subject. Yeah. But, like right now I'd say I don't know, like I feel like I want I really want to be in the shop just kinda of making molds and um just making stuff. Yeah. That's my that's my kinda of gut gut reaction right now.
2: Yeah.
0: Do you have any um uh new things you've been working on with Alinea that's that's come out recently? Any any interesting new little
1: Yeah, uh, Alinea and Avia have been pretty much all everything came to a halt with the Kickstarter, so I'd say okay. you know, there are things that had been in a pipeline for a while but everything kinda of paused for for this one project and uh so hopefully we'll be able to reboot and kinda of resume where we left off.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So last question, do you think you would do another Kickstarter or too early to to say? That that long pause is the same long pause I have when I think about it too.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that I um I think I would do another Kickstarter. Yeah. You know, like like so my emotional Response right now to that kind of question is like, no. Right. You know, because there's just so much unknown. At the same time, a lot of the unknowns we've kind of learned to deal with and, you know, so we'd be better prepared for it. Um, so ultimately, I think that if there's a project that feels like it needs the resources and it needs that level of support, you know, I would, I would probably rather do a Kickstarter than look for uh, investors. Right, you know, or or look for you know conventional backing or you know because ultimately these projects you know to be done on this scale like we're you know one Kickstarter project doesn't make us capable of supporting that infrastructure and um, you know it doesn't really provide enough resources to to grow from that point. Yeah, so I think that I it would make sense to that, you know, we would, that, you know, it makes sense to consider it as a, as a viable option, regardless of my kind of current emotional
0: state. Yeah. Yeah. Having having the distance from it myself now, it's been over, I guess, over a year and a half since I finished shipping the, the, uh, the initial Kickstarter stuff. And I do now. I am. I think at the time I was like, I just, I don't, I don't think I could ever do that again. But now I'm kind of like, I know what I would do differently, just like you said. And I think uh, if if the right project kind of struck a chord with me, I probably would.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a matter of uh, having a project on the table that's interesting and um, that that really would require those resources. Yeah. You know, most of the stuff I deal with does does not really. You know, it's stuff that we can make and. Uh, we
0: just do it yeah well you know when when you do your next Kickstarter project I'll be you know I was one of the first ones to to back the porthole and for sure I'll be one of the first ones to back you know anything you do next I think your work's
2: uh amazing it's
0: it's it's some of the I mean it's just so interesting the work that you do and I and I think it's just so unique and, and and great and Everyone should definitely check it out. So your your website's uh, crucialdetail.com. Name of your studio as well is Crucial Detail. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. uh, Hey, thanks a lot for uh, for coming on.
2: All right. Thank you.
0: Thanks. See you more. Bye. Bye. that's our show. Many thanks to Martin Kastner for being our guest today. You can see his studio's work at crucialdetail.com. You can subscribe to After School on iTunes. All you need to do is just go to the iTunes store on your computer or the podcast app on your mobile device and search for Core 77 or After School. Also on Core 77, we include show notes that link you to all the stuff you heard us talking about with Martin. You can follow me and the After School podcast on Twitter at afterschool.com. And you can follow Core 77 on Twitter at Core 77. After School's theme song is Introducing Today by Disco Lobos. I'm Don Lehman. Talk to you soon.